0: commit this time to you, and we pray this all in your name. Amen. Last month, a major dam in Libya collapsed unexpectedly, wiping out nearly a quarter of the coastal city of Derna and quickly killing at least 11,000 people. Another 10,000 are still missing, trapped either beneath completely destroyed neighborhoods or washed out into the ocean. And I have a few pictures here. It happened at night. So most of this is just after effect. See some of the water levels there. The next one here is one of the neighborhoods that wasn't completely flattened. And when I heard about this tragic dam breach, it reminded me of how dangerous it is to have a false sense of security in something that's unreliable. The people of that town must have believed that they were secure when they woke up that morning. But when the dam failed, it was too late for thousands of them to escape. Our passage today is a very serious one for any religious person, especially those with access to God's word like we're so privileged to have in our country. In this section of Romans, it's about a false sense of security that is infinitely more dangerous than the failed dam in Libya. Before we jump into our passage, let me ask you one question to set it up. What's your source of security before God? Specifically in this section, Paul's talking about standing before God in judgment, the judgment of God. And when you consider the judgment of God, what gives you comfort? What gives you peace? What do you look to to give yourself a sense of security for when that day comes? To see what our passage has to say about this, we're going to look at two main points. We're going to look at the false security before God, and we're going to look at the false advertising about God. We're going to see the connection between these two points, false security before God and false advertising about God. Before we get into our first main point, let's reset the context. Paul's been working to prove why the, the only way people can be made right with God is through faith in the gospel. And to do that, he first demonstrated why sexually immoral idol worshipers are guilty and without excuse before God. Then he turned the tables to show that even morally devout people are guilty before God as well because of their hypocrisy, which is true even of those without access to God, as we saw in last week's passage. And that's because of the moral compass that God has given all people in their conscience. Now Paul is going to shift his focus, to the final group that's without excuse before God, and that's the Jews, God's own covenant people. In the minds of many Jews, it was a radical statement to say that God would judge them impartially, or without favoritism, along with the idol-worshiping nations around them. And our passage today shows two of the big reasons that Jews put their security and their confidence in something else. Those two areas were their godly heritage and their access to To God's law. We see both of these in the first two verses of our section. Paul says, now if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law. Let's consider the Jews' godly heritage first. God made a unique covenant with Abraham to bless the whole world through his offspring. And the Jews, they were the descendants of Abraham. The Jews enjoyed many incredible privileges because of this. And it led to many of them being convinced that they were acceptable to God and better than the other nations simply because of their nationality. For example, one common tradition, it taught that Abraham sat at the gate of hell to make sure no Jews went there, no matter how they lived. So have that picture in your mind. It's almost like Abraham is like a bouncer at hell. And he's like, nope, Jews, no Jews, come here. We, we see this in a writing that is claimed to have come from Trypho the Jew, where he said, they who are the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient toward God, share in the eternal kingdom. Now, of course, not all ancient Jews believed this, but you can see that many were confident that God would judge all the nations except their own. This is tribalism at its worst, to believe that all members of one's own group are good and better than all those who are outside of it. And Paul knew from the inside the false security that most of his fellow Jews had in their nationality and spiritual heritage. And so in Romans chapter 2, what Paul does is he begins to skillfully lay all of these different sticks of theological dynamite around that foundation. And his goal is, by the end of Romans, to completely destroy their false sense of security. Paul begins this in verse 17 by saying, If you call yourself a Jew. It's easy to read over that and miss that this, this was a provocative statement. It it called into question a Jew's deepest self-identification. You can imagine a Jew responding, what do you mean if I call myself a Jew? I am a Jew. Like I I am a child of Abraham. But Paul, just a few verses later, as we're going to see next week, he's going to show that being a true Jew or being a true child of God, it's not based on your heritage or nationality, but it's based on having a new heart from God. In other words, it's not about what family you've been born into, but have you been born again? You can sense the powerful, powerful relevance of this still today in our culture if you just replace the word Jew with Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, you, are sitting here, you who are sitting here this morning, if you call yourself a Christian, see, many people assume they're right with God simply because of their religious heritage. Some put confidence in their denomination. Of course I'm a Christian. I grew up Presbyterian or Methodist, or Baptist, or fill in the blank. Others put their confidence in specific family members. Of course I'm a Christian. My grandpa was a pastor. My mom taught Bible study my whole life. My sister, she's a missionary. See, false security in one's spiritual heritage, it was not just a first century Jewish problem. It's a challenge in every culture, in every generation. I want to speak specifically to those of you who have grown up in Christian families, especially the children here who've grown up in in our church. A question for you to consider is, is your faith in Jesus Christ or is it in your parents? See, I had amazing parents growing up. We went to church regularly. They taught me the Bible. And it was all a wonderful experience. But when I first began to to really wrestle with what, what happens after we die, Interestingly, the, the thing that I was wondering about, the thing that I was worried about, it wasn't hell. It was just the idea of living forever. I remember thinking about that in bed one night. And when my dad came to tuck me in, I asked him, no, Dad, do you think that every 10,000 years, I can just reevaluate with God? Like, do I want to do keep doing this heaven thing? You know, it's like resubscribing to heaven. <laughs> like, or am I just kind of ready to, you yeah, know, this is good. I'm ready to... Not, not exist anymore. And it seems silly kind of looking back. But my dad, he took that opportunity to, to share the gospel with me, which I'm sure he had many times. And I ended up praying that night. I prayed and, and I asked Jesus into my heart. And for years, I thought that's when I became a Christian. But as I look back on my life, I'm not sure when I became a Christian, but I'm sure it wasn't then. I'm sure it wasn't that night. Because at the time, I, I had no sense that I deserved hell. That, that wasn't on my radar at all. No, I, my faith was in my dad. Many young kids do come to faith in Christ. But my faith, it was not, it was not in Christ. It was in my father. Those of you who, who are here, you who are kids, what's your faith in? I, remember, I want to remind all of us, not just the kids, that we're going to all stand before God. And on that day, you can't hide behind your family. You can't hide behind the faith of your friends. See, a godly heritage, a godly family, it is an amazing blessing, but it can't save you. A godly family can't save you. We have to reject that false sense of security, that false source of security. there's another closely related source of false security that Paul immediately highlights, and that's access to God's word, or for the Jews, access to God's law. This is verses 17 and 18 again. He says, now if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law. None of these descriptions Paul gives was bad in and of themselves. It was a privilege to be a Jew. We should rely on God's law in the sense of trusting what it says. We should boast in God, not ourselves. We should seek to know his will. We should let our moral judgments be formed by his word. The Jews, they had these unique privileges because they were entrusted with God's law as a nation, but that gave them some unique responsibilities. And Paul turns to those in verses 19 through 20. He says, And if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, Israel was called to be a light among the nations, to glorify God among the nations. They were blessed by God to be a blessing. They were taught by God to teach others. The problem was not in the Jews trying to point people to God or teach others the law. All of that is appropriate and good. Everything that that Paul has said so far, though, it's to set up verse 21. It's all been a setup. In light of the Jews' privileged position and possession of the law and responsibility to instruct others in the wisdom of God's law, Paul says, you then. Who teach another? Don't you teach yourself? This is absolutely brilliant, because Paul knew the Jews. They took great pride in having the law and teaching the law. And so he asked a piercing question. Do you teach yourself? Surely, since the law is so important, you teach yourself first, don't you? Just as Paul exposed the Gentile hypocrites at the start of chapter 2 for doing the very things that they judged others of, he now exposes the Jews for taking pride in having the law and teaching the law without keeping the law. This is verses 21 through 22. You then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say, you must not commit adultery, Do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? These questions are more sticks of dynamite, meant to blast away the false security the Jews had because of possessing the law. And there seems to be multiple layers here. First, the Jews nationally had failed over and over again throughout their history to honor God and take the commands of the Mosaic Covenant seriously. This is why the the nation was sent into exile and removed for a time from the land of Israel. And the prophet Ezekiel, he stressed that God's people profaned his name among the nations where they were scattered. Three times in one chapter, he says, you've profaned God's name everywhere you've gone. The Jews had failed over time collectively in their role of glorifying God among the Gentiles. So that's layer one. Layer two is that many of the Jews in Paul's own day had externally broken the very laws that they proudly taught. Rabbi Zakai, a contemporary of Paul, he wrote in his day of the increase of murder, adultery, sexual vice, commercial and judicial corruption, bitter sectarian strife, and other evils among the Jews. There were famous Jewish rabbis of the time who were charged with committing adultery, And listen to the reputation that the Jews had, according to the Roman historian Tacitus. He said that they show hatred or animosity to all people who are not their own. So That was the Jews. That That was the way they were perceived by other nations. They hate everyone else that's not a part of their own nation. Now, these three sins of stealing, committing adultery, robbing temples, they may have been extreme examples that, that Paul was citing to shame the Jewish community for their failure in his own day to keep the law and honor God. But that said, there's no way that Paul thought all Jews individually had committed each of these three sins, or even that most had, at least externally. And that leads to the last layer. It seems that Paul is not only talking about external sins, but also internal sins of the heart. That's been his his big concern since Romans chapter 1. And this would also follow the example of Jesus in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus there, he was seeking to do the same thing. He was seeking to expose the false security of many Jews because they possessed the law. He's trying to help them to see that God's law, it doesn't just apply to behavior. It also applies to your heart. While some of the Jews might not have stolen anything, They'd all surely coveted the possessions of another, committing theft in the heart. Now, what about adultery? Well, Jesus, of course, specifically taught that if you look at another lustfully, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart. This word adultery, it's also used extensively in the Old Testament. I think that many of these references would have come to the Jews' mind that Paul was addressing this word was used not just for their physical adultery that often accompanied idolatry, but it was also used to vividly describe the nation as a whole because of their spiritual unfaithfulness to God. The nation was often referred to as adulterers, spiritually, spiritual adulterers because of their unfaithfulness to God, because they broke the covenant with God through their sin. Now, this brings us to Paul's interesting third question. He says, you you who detest idols, do you rob temples? What what is Paul saying here? See, the the first century Jews, they despised idols. They took great pride in, in not worshiping idols, as many of their ancestors had. Now, some of the Jews who would have never worshiped idols themselves, they may have had no problem being involved in selling stolen idols for profit. But once again, it seems like Paul is also intending another reference to the heart here. He's saying you hate physically bowing down to idols. Good. But you do the exact same thing in your heart. You worship and and serve created things rather than the creator, just like the Gentiles you despise. And in that sense, you're actually robbing their temples. You internally copy the external false worship that you detest in others. And what, what do you do in temples? people bring sacrifices to the idols, right? And they make the sacrifices so that their gods will accept them, so their gods will bless them. Now, the Jews didn't have idols, but they were using the law in the exact same way. They thought to themselves, we have the law, and if we keep the law, then God has to accept us. If we keep the law, God has to to bless us. God owes us. And this is the idolatry of morality, the idolatry specifically of moralism, the thought that if I am a good person, if I try and live respectfully, then God has to bless me. God has to accept me. But the biggest problem with the idolatry of moralism is that it's building your security before God on the possession of his law or on your obedience to the law. And we all fail to keep it. We all regularly fail to keep it externally, and we constantly fail to keep it internally. Remember, I think that's what Paul is is driving at here. It's not not just our behavior that God's going to judge. We can tend to think God is going to judge us like other people do, based off of what they see, based off what they can observe in our lives. But it is an unnerving thing when you begin to realize that your private world isn't private to God. See, with other human beings, we take comfort knowing other people can't see exactly what I'm thinking right now. They don't see everything that's going on inside of me. And because of that, no one knows just how proud and selfish we actually are. No one is. No one knows that except for God. See, God is 100% aware, 100% of the time, of everything that is happening inside of us. And he's not just going to judge, again, what we do on the outside, Paul says he's going to judge the secrets of men's hearts. When you begin to realize that, when people realize that, you see that it is a terrifying thought to be judged before an all-knowing and holy God based on how well you've kept his law. The point I'm trying to make is that the law can't save anyone. That's one of the, the big themes of the Bible. The law, the law can't save anyone. Instead, it's, it's supposed to show us that we need to be saved. We need a savior. Paul's goal in this section is primarily to expose that that Jews are just as guilty before God as Gentiles, despite their possession of the law. They're still without excuse. God doesn't want, or I'm sorry, Paul doesn't want the Jews or any of us here to have a false security based on mere knowledge of God's law. One commentator that I was reading this week, he had a couple of helpful signs. Maybe we have fallen into that category. Maybe there's some here who they've they've built their identity before God on a false foundation. The first sign is that God's truth is always conceptual, but never personal. So this is someone who loves to talk about God's word. They like to talk about theology. They like to to talk about it theoretically. But it it rarely, if ever, actually (laughs) impacts them personally. I contrast this with Hebrews 4.12. It says that God's word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates to dividing all the way to soul and spirit. If you're a Christian, you have God's spirit living inside of you. And so with God's word, there's an actual conviction of sin. I'm not saying that every time you open the Bible, there's fireworks, but, but over time, God's, God's word, it will convict you. Sin will bother you. The idolatry in your life, it will bother you. The grace of God, it will impress you. It will move you. You'll want to to figure out, how how does God want me to live? What changes do I need to to make to to walk with him? And so one sign that you've built your, your identity and security before God in the wrong place is that if truth is always conceptual and never personal. Second way is, that if, is if God's truth always leads to a superior or insecure spirit. If God's truth, if his, if his word, if it leads you to either view yourself as better than others when you think you're keeping it well, or it leads you to feel insecure and worse than others when you feel like you're failing. We'll circle back to that second one later. But let me just ask you again, what do you look to for security before God? What's your security on the day when you stand before him? If it's knowing how God wants you to live, if it's the, the way that you have tried to live, what you need to do is repent. What you need to do is recognize the, the whole Bible is God saying, I love you, and you have no chance, no chance, no shot when you stand before me on your own. That's why you need Christ. You need to turn to Christ. Now, as Christians, if we're honest, this section isn't just convicting for unbelievers, is it? I mean, it is so easy, even as believers, to begin to, to put our, our confidence and to build our security somewhere else. And I think that that's part of why it's so good to study through Romans like this, to hear week after week for probably at least four to six weeks, we're just going to be reminded there's no hope apart from Christ. There's no hope apart from Christ. And that's good for us. It's not repetitive. And the reason is because in our flesh, even as Christians, in our flesh, there's a resistance to finding our identity only in what Christ has done for us. There's a huge resistance. We, we want to find something that we can boast in, something else that we can point to. It's easy for us to, to begin to put our confidence in the knowledge of the Bible instead of the God of the Bible. It's very easy to confuse spiritual knowledge with spiritual maturity. James puts it this way, writing primarily to Christians. He says, don't merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Isn't that convicting? (laughs) Isn't that that a little bit of a scary thought? If we hear God's word and we don't apply it, James says, you are deceiving yourself. You you are deceiving yourself. That's, That's what happens. You see, the more we learn about the Bible, the more deceived we will be if we refuse to apply it. When we're convicted by God, if we ignore that, we deceive ourselves. We think, well, I know, I know what God wants. And that, that can be equal to, to maturity. That can be equal to, to doing what God wants. I think one helpful place to see how much easier it is to teach others than to apply truth to ourselves is in the area of parenting. For those of you who are parenting, you can, parents, you can probably relate. But think, about, think about the area of bitterness. And with, with your kids, you spend so much time trying to, to help them to reconcile. And when, when they have arguments, don't just, say, don't just go through the motions. Act, actually reconcile. Work to restore that relationship. It's a lot easier to say that than to do it when someone really hurts you, right? When someone really, really offends you, to work towards genuine reconciliation with another brother or sister. What about patience? It's easy to tell your kids, hey, be, be, just, just chill. Be patient with each other when you're being impatient with your kids, right? <laughs> or screen time. My wife and I, we try and limit the screen time of our kids. And one of the reasons we tell them is because we don't want you to have to have, to have a screen to be entertained. We want you to learn to enjoy each other. And yet there's times where I find myself distracted. I'm, I'm not connecting with my kids because you know, there's, there's notifications coming in messages coming in. There's articles that I want to read, scores that I want to check. There's times I just have to like put my phone down. I can tell them that, but it's a lot easier to tell them that than to actually apply it to myself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher, he had this quote for Christians, and it's primarily aimed at, at people who teach the Bible. He says, as you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves? As you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is this saying about me? Allow the scripture to search you. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. When you read the Bible, do you pray? Do, do you recognize your need for God's help to, to apply the truth, to even understand the truth clearly, and especially to be changed by it? You can't change yourself apart from the Holy Spirit's help. Do you pray and say, God, don't let this be just a religious activity. I want to connect with you. I want to hear from you. But we need the Holy Spirit to help root out the natural hypocrisy in our lives. I don't know who first said this, but it's been helpful for me. We don't don't want to seek to master God's word, but to let God's word master us. I think there's a big difference. A good chunk of my early life, I was trying to do the first. I wanted to master God's word, but there's a difference between trying to know it really well and, and letting it master you, not just interpreting the Bible, letting scripture interpret you, expose you. This is especially true for those of us who lead Bible study or in positions to teach God's word. You see, every time we teach the Bible, we're either becoming more genuine or more hypocritical, depending on the way that we handle God's word. And the scriptures, they're not just facts that we're trying to present in an interesting way. These are eternal truths that we're trying to allow to shape our souls and to shape our lives. All believers, we need to battle with the lie that knowing what God says is the same as trusting what God says. Those are different. And the only way to mature spiritually is as we apply by faith the truth of the gospel to our inner world and to the decisions that we make. Now this leads us to briefly consider our second main point, false advertising about God. False advertising about God. Whenever people have a false security before God, it will lead to a false advertising about God. Now, when you think about false advertising, a lot of it is designed to make products look better than it actually is, right? Just think every fast food advertisement ever, right? Here's just one example, a Big Mac at McDonald's, the advertisement versus the actual burger. And I don't know if you can see the fine print. I like how it says, most attractive angle. <laughs> so. so Some false advertising is to make a product look better than it actually is. There's other false advertising that makes someone else look worse than they actually are. Just think any political campaign about an opponent ever, right? It seems like the goal of smear ads is to make whoever you're running against look worse than the Antichrist. Uh, We're going into a political season. We're going to see a lot of political campaigns. And it made me feel better this week when I realized this isn't just an American thing. Some of you have probably heard of Tony Blair before Uh, uh, a politician from the UK. This was a real ad that got ran about Tony Blair. It's a picture of him with like demon eyes superimposed. And it did not go over well uh, in England. But I just think to myself, that looks so ridiculous. It looks so ridiculous. Now, as ridiculous as that is, I get sobering to think we can give a false advertisement about God as believers. We can give a a false picture of what God is like through our lives. This is verses 23 through 24. It says, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Isn't that heavy? The Jews' false security in possessing the law led to them misrepresenting God in a dramatic way as a nation. And the same thing can happen to us as believers. And there are two big ways that we can dishonor God. The first is blatant hypocrisy, blatant hypocrisy. This is the pastor who has an affair. It's an outspoken Christian business leader caught in a financial scandal. It's a Christian parent who tells their kids never to drink, but often comes home drunk. It's a, a student ministry leader who's known as one of the biggest gossips on campus. This is when a believer obviously and publicly contradicts the very morals that they're known to teach. So that's one way. But a second way that we dishonor God is self-righteousness. It's self, self-righteousness. And you can argue that this is just as dishonoring to God, and perhaps even more so than blatant hypocrisy. Self-righteousness is when a Christian, who does not have any big external moral failures, they, they have a proud and arrogant attitude towards others that do, that they come across as looking down on others. This is one of the biggest excuses that many people give for not taking the claims of Christ seriously. It's blatant, big acts of hypocrisy, and then the more subtle self-righteousness of the religious people that they know. And many of you have probably heard this excuse. many of you probably have friends and family. The reason they don't take Christ seriously is because of the religious people they know. It's because of the professing Christians that they know. Now, if you're a Christian, you have a deep desire to honor Christ. That's part of being a Christian. You, you, You don't want to misrepresent him. But if you've been following Christ for any amount of time, you know that there are still areas in your life where you do dishonor him. This is why I said, earlier that the only way to mature spiritually is as we apply the truth of the gospel to our inward inward world and decisions. I can think about my own life. There are many cringeworthy memories I have where I definitely dishonored God before others. And I'm sure there are many many more times that it it has happened than I am aware of. And if our focus is only on our external behavior, if that's where we put all of our focus, then we're going to have a false sense of security before God. And that will always lead to false advertising about God. Now, how so? How does that work? Well, if you're only focusing on external behavior, then you're going to feel good about yourself if you think that you're performing well. And, and then you'll begin to look down on others. You won't have to try. It happens just subconsciously. But you think you're performing well, and you begin to judge other people. And that sends the message to others that a relationship with God is based primarily on your works primarily on what you do, and that God loves you and other people more based on their obedience. That's the message that it communicates. Now, on the other hand, if you put the focus externally and you fail, you're going to become insecure. You're going to become defensive. You're going to try and hide, hide, hide that and not let people get close enough to see it. And it can even lead to you becoming very depressed and self-loathing because your identity has been built on your perceived moral goodness. And when we live that way, it sends the message again to other people that our relationship with God, it's built first on our works. It's built primarily on our works, and that God loves us and loves others less when they disobey. Now, what is the truth about God's love? Does he love us because of how well we love him and how well we represent him? Well, praise God, the answer is no. And this is is so clear when you realize that Paul, when he quotes verse 24, this is actually from Isaiah 52, verse 6. So verse 24, about God's name being blasphemed among the Gentiles. This is from Isaiah 52. And the, the context there is so powerful. In verse 6, the verse that Paul quotes, God, he's amazingly comforting his people, despite the fact that his name is blasphemed among all the nations day and night by them. That's what he says, day and night, the nations, they're blaspheming me because of you, because of how you've dishonored me. And in that section, God is comforting his people. Right after this is the famous promise where it says that how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul, in in Isaiah 52, God, he promises to bring about a shocking and supernatural salvation for his people, which is going to bring him glory among all the nations. And I'm just going to read two verses from that. In verses 9 and 10, you get a flavor of it. It says, be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, all the ends of the earth, will see the salvation of our God. And guess what comes right after this? The chapter then turns to the suffering servant and the famous prophecies about how he would be pierced for our rebellion. He would be crushed because of our iniquities. He would be punished for our peace and we would be healed by his wounds. And this is really the heart of the gospel. That the God, the eternal and perfect and holy God that we have disgraced, he came and was crucified in our place. He took the eternal shame that we should have experienced. He took the punishment that, that we should have had poured out on us. And he did that so that we could have peace with him. We could have eternal salvation that is independent of how well we love him. It's not contingent on how well we represent him. See, the Bible teaches us that we love because he first loved us. And his love is not like our love. He doesn't love us because of any goodness or virtue in us. He loves us because he is love. It's just natural to him. He doesn't save us because we are superior in any way to others, but because he is infinitely gracious and generous to all who repent and believe in him. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, that is the only source of true security before God. You'll never have real peace before God. If you're not resting in what Christ has accomplished for you. The cross of Christ is also the only truth that produces in us lives that accurately demonstrate to the world who God is. God's grace, it produces a deeper desire to obey God in us than the law ever can because we're not living out of fear of punishment. We're not trying to get God's acceptance, but we're, we're living in response to how he already has accepted us, even though we don't deserve it. And as we Obey as we're motivated by God's grace. God's grace, it counteracts the proud tendencies of our heart and reminds us if there's anything good in us, it's because of his grace towards us. It's not because we're any better than anyone else. God's grace, it empowers us to obey, and it empowers us to love other people and have compassion on other people who are far from God. In other words, God's grace teaches us to live in such a way that shows the world that God's love for us is unconditional. It's not based on how well we love him. It's not based on how well we represent him. And the more passionate we, we are about that truth, the more clearly we see it, the more we'll have a, a heart for others to experience it as well. We love because he first loved us, and he loves us perfectly. Just to, to close, one practical suggestion for all of you is to read through Isaiah 52 and 53. Read those together multiple times this week. And I'd encourage all of you to do that, but especially if you're like me, if when you fail, when you dishonor God, if that, if that weighs on you, if you feel discouraged, even just the internal ways you see dysfunction in your life, the internal ways you, you dishonor God, I'd encourage you to read that multiple times this week and let God comfort you with the promises of the gospel. Let God refresh you with the reality that through Christ's work on the cross, all the ends of the earth, they are going to see the salvation of God. And ultimately, Christ is going to be honored among all the nations, not because we're so impressive and faithful to him, but because he is so gracious and faithful to us. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the cross. Lord, we pray that we become like the Apostle Paul, who, who only boasts in the cross of Jesus. Christ. That we wouldn't have false security in other other places. We wouldn't build our identity on other things. But I pray that if, if there are those here today and their confidence is not in you, they don't know you, I pray you'd use this even to draw them. Help them to see their need for you and see how good you are. And for the rest of us, Lord, just rid out the, the ways that, that we can Take your word for granted, the ways that that we can be hypocritical, the ways that we can kind of confuse knowledge for actual maturity. Lord, please, please change us. Please work in us. Please make us more sensitive to you. And God, in view of your grace, in view of your kindness to us, that I pray there'd just be a, a refreshed excitement, Lord, to, to follow after you. So we thank you so much for your word, and we commit the Uh, the rest of our time together and the rest of our day to you in your great name. Amen. We're going to continue